Welcome, 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 fellow housers and fellow people who care about humanity. Welcome to the On The Way Home podcast. I am your host, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. Blue Door is an organization that covers the top of the greater Toronto area in York, Region, Durham, and Peel, providing services around housing, health, and employment, meaningful employment, I should say, uh, to thousands year over year. And I work with uh, over 100 amazing people there. This is brought to you in partnership with the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. CAEH, if you don't know them, which I'm sure you do, check out their website at caeh.ca. They have a big conference coming up in uh, Halifax this year. You don't want to miss it. The best and the brightest from around the world come together uh, and talk about solutions to preventing and ending homelessness. And they do much, much more work, training, uh, expertise, different campaigns. Check it out. Uh, you won't be sorry. Again, caeh.ca. And if you want to check out my team, what we're doing at Blue Door, we're always up to sharing and learning. Go to www.bluedoor.ca um, and check that out. Now, today's guest, I'm so excited. We had so much fun with this podcast. I have Josiah uh, Haken there. Tell me it rhymes with bacon, so I almost said Josiah Bacon. Josiah Haken, he's the CEO of City Relief, and they operate in... Uh, New York and New Jersey. They do a city, they do street outreach work. Uh, incredible conversation. We talk about, uh, they've had, a, they have a new mayor there uh, in New York who's made all sorts of different policy changes uh, around how they've affected people on the street too. They, he's been sweeping people out of the, um, using law enforcement and using that kind of law and order approach to the subway, to encampments, pushing people out. He's kind of pushing them in different areas, not really solving it. We talk about that. Uh, what the result has been. We talk about uh, their system, about uh, how uh, you need to spend at least a year in a shelter before you're able to get housing. Uh, New York City has a right to ha- right to shelter. And he was very clear that that is not a right to housing, it's a right to shelter. So that's why a lot of people are, are in the shelter system. Over 500 days on average, uh, Josiah told us, he talks about the multiple challenges right now that are happening across the city with migration and other pieces happening, not enough housing, uh, the kind of incarceration approach, forcing people into treatment. Uh, if someone comes from out of the area and needs services that are sent back to the area they came from, uh, regardless of the reasons they left. So very, very uh, different. And this is the U.S. New York City. He talks about the number of people experiencing homelessness, how uh, although they might have more people than they do in uh, LA, uh, they, they, um, or sorry, California, um, yeah, Los Angeles, but they may have more people. It's just reverse where California and Los Angeles would have a lot more visible homelessness uh, and not as much hidden. In New York City, there's a lot of hidden homelessness of people that are precariously housed. Uh, and and not as much visual, especially with all the law and order pieces going on right now. It's a fascinating conversation. I actually had the privilege of going to New York City as part of a Canadian study tour to look at some of the things they were doing, how they're working. Uh, and we, we toured all over New York, New Jersey, looking at the different systems. And this was just previous to uh, talking with Josiah. So so really had some insight into that. In many ways, we're facing a lot of the same challenges, uh, but we deal with them uh, very differently. The policies are a little different and not to say bad or worse, uh, but you you decide. Listen to this podcast, incredible guest, Josiah Haken, the CEO of City Relief. I think you'll really find it interesting and learn a lot. I certainly did. Uh, let's go to the podcast. Josiah, it's so great to have you on the On The Way Home podcast. Welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Well, the first question we always ask people because it's, you know, although they're similar themes, it means a little something to, uh, different to everyone because it's personal. And that is, what does home mean to you? For me, home makes me think of uh, stability, um, consistency. Uh, when I think of home, I think of um, community and, and um yeah, so that, that's those are the three words that, that come to mind immediately when I think when I think of home. Interesting that you mentioned community. I was talking with a group today, and I think for the longest time in the work that we do, and we're going to talk more about city relief and the work you do, uh, is that if you don't create a community for people, right? So we create communities within shelters or within encampments or within there's a sense of community. That's why people stay. And sometimes, even though the best of intention, it, with the best of intentions, you put them in, in, into housing, and because it's, it's, they don't know it, they don't know the people, there's no sense of community, they may end up back at that encampment or back at that shelter, right? Because they, they miss that sense of someone cares that I'm here, someone notices I'm here, I'm not on my own, I have connection, et cetera, right? Like, so community, love that response, is, is so uh, important to that. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, your journey, right? So I know uh, we always want to learn a little bit about our guests. Talk a little bit about, walk us through your journey into the work you're doing now. Sure. So I I, I grew up uh, in West Africa, actually in, in Cameroon. Um, my my parents work with an organization called Wycliffe Bible Translators, and so I was born in Yaoundé, Cameroon, um, and then my family moved to Hershey, Pennsylvania, in the U.S. Um, when I was going into high school as a, about 14 or 15 years old. Um, and yeah, I, I tell people you can take the kid out of Africa, but you can't take Africa out of the kid. Um, I think that there is, uh, sort of something from my childhood that kind of stuck with me around how to, um, you know, look at the world through a more sort of multicultural lens. Um, and so I, I quickly became kind of disenchanted with, uh, sort of the central Pennsylvania church and uh, sort of white America scene uh, that I was uh, in, in, you know, living in for a number of years. Um, got married young, um, and then my wife uh, went to nursing school, and I didn't really have. I was working in sales and and just kind of trying to find my way and and provide for for my wife and I and. Um, but eventually that led to me connecting to a community of faith in New Jersey uh, that I, I felt sort of, uh, you know, inspired by. And uh, I started driving out to New Jersey to, to help this, uh, this church plant get off the ground. Um, but then I, I, I quickly realized that, that church, the church world was not really my jam either. Uh, and I, I kind of started connecting with people sort of on the margins and volunteering my, my time um, when I could out, outside of work and just sort of fell in love with with people uh, who were dealing with homelessness and people in the street. And um, one thing led to another, and I was introduced to an organization at the time that was called New York City Relief. Um, and uh, I was invited to come volunteer uh, with them and uh, went out on the street uh, with, with a group of people that, you know, tried to set up uh, uh, sort of these pop-up block parties where people could, uh, who are living and experiencing homelessness could connect uh, to resources and, and have a safe place to just be cared for and seen. Um, and I quickly fell in love. Uh, my first day in the street uh, was in the South Bronx. 
Um, and the South Bronx is one of the most diverse communities in the country, in the, in the United States of America. And, um, and so, and I just, again, I just felt right at home. Um, and then as soon after that, I volunteered again because they just couldn't get rid of me. Uh, and we went to East Harlem and, and our first outreach in East Harlem, we set up in front of an African hair braiding salon um, where I just, again, felt completely at home and felt uh, like this was the intersection of sort of my past and my, and my present and my future. Um, so ultimately I just, they just couldn't get rid of me. I kept on showing up and, uh, one thing led to another and I ended up accepting a job as an outreach leader and, and, and would take teams of volunteers out into the streets and, uh, just engage with people who are experiencing homelessness and, and different challenges. And, uh, like I said, just kind of fell in love with it and, and it just stuck. And so, um, just continued, that was about in 2010, uh, that I was first introduced to the organization. And, and then last year, uh, in February of 2022, um, I was selected by the board of directors to be the next CEO um, of this organization that is now called City Relief, um, and yeah, that's it's been it's been a wild ride. I, I, it was not certainly uh, something I planned on, but I kind of kept on opening the door that was right in front of me, and, and one thing led to another, and here I am. So it's been a bit of a wild journey, but I, I don't regret a single thing. I absolutely love love the work that I get to do on a day. Uh, day by day basis, and it's just such a privilege to to meet some of the most incredible people in the world. Yeah, and let, let's face it, this is tough work that you've done, and you continue to do. Uh, it is not uh, for the faint of heart because of the hardship, the poverty, um, and and you know, I, I I would guess by your frame of mind and, and uh, just on you for a couple of minutes that you tend to focus uh, on the positive, on the connections with uh, with people. Uh, now, so people understand, City Relief, tell us a little bit more about the focus of the organization. What do you do? Sure. Who do you serve? What area do you serve? Sure. So City Relief is a, is, is a relatively small nonprofit. Um, we, uh, we, have, we, we basically are an outreach organization. Now, I will caveat that by saying lately, now just within the last few months, I, every time I say the word outreach, uh, it, it, I, I, I stumble over it because I don't necessarily love the, the the dynamic of the word outreach, but effectively for the for the general population, uh, we do outreach. Uh, we we take a, a vehicles into uh, communities in New York City and New Jersey um, every single week that are struggling with uh, homelessness and, and acute poverty. Um, so we go uh, to like Midtown Manhattan where there's thousands of people who are uh, experiencing street homelessness and, and living in shelters and. Um, we go to the South Bronx, like I mentioned, Harlem. Um, we also go to Newark, New Jersey, and Patterson, New Jersey, um, that are, are towns that, uh, again, continue to struggle uh, economically. Um, but we we set up these pop-up events um, where we kind of set up tables and chairs and canopies, and we play music. And uh, we basically just try to create an environment where uh, anyone uh, who might be interested would be welcome, uh, and, and they can share a meal. We always provide... Uh, a, a vegan soup that's it's really good. It's it's freshly made every day. Uh, we get Portuguese rolls donated from a bakery in Newark um, that are just amazing. Uh, we give out Bombas socks and and toiletry kits to to anyone who needs them. Um, but most importantly, we try to create this environment where uh, people who are are struggling to access resources uh, can get sort of an in. Can, can, can get connected to people and organizations that can help them navigate the bureaucracy of social services um, 
uh, very uh, easily. So by creating a safe and welcoming environment where again, there's no pressure, there's it's very low bar uh, of entry. Um, many of the people we serve are experiencing homelessness, but some of them are not. And some of them are just lonely and need some community or, or just want a, a place to hang out uh, for a few hours. And, and so we create that space where they're, where they're welcome and, and, and seen and cared for. Um, but then we also intentionally try to connect people uh, to the resources that they can access. Because in New York City specifically, many of the resources that exist for the, for the homeless community are really kind of spread out and, and sort of siloed. Um, and so if you go to one resource in, in search for, say, ID or housing support, um, you may end up getting kicked around or, or you may get there at the wrong time, talk to the wrong person, might get told you were at the wrong place. You need to go around the corner, down the block, uptown. Um, and that sort of bureaucratic uh, maze that people have to navigate just to, to make some incremental progress. Uh, can be overwhelming and 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 very disheartening, and, and it, it can actually lead people to staying uh, in the streets or in their shelters longer than necessary. So, by creating these these pop up events where people can not only meet their felt needs of their hung, you know, if they're hungry or if they need supplies or, or, or hygiene support, um, they can access that with no strings. Uh, and we have people that are there specifically to help people navigate uh, and access help. Uh, to, to get off the street altogether. Because as an organization, we understand that, um, you know, homelessness uh, takes years off the average life expectancy. Uh, the average life expectancy of someone experiencing homelessness in the U.S. is about 20 years less than the national average. So um, it is a life and death issue. And, and we feel a sense of urgency to make sure that we're not uh, only providing uh, a food, you know, food and hygiene supplies for today, but we're also providing connections and advocacy and support to help people escape homelessness tomorrow and, and hopefully indefinitely. So our goal as an organization is to, to end homelessness, uh, uh, you know, one person at a time uh, or one situation at a time. So uh, we've been around since 1989 um, and I've been working uh, and had the privilege of working for this organization now uh, since 2010. So I'm really proud of the work we do. Um, and obviously we're always trying to get better and we're trying to do it uh, do it better every day, but um, just, yeah, really proud of the work that City Relief does day in and day out to to help our, our unhoused neighbors get connected to resources and help them escape homelessness altogether. As, as you should be, you're doing incredible and impactful work. Uh, for our listeners that may not know, can you talk about what does homelessness look like number-wise? What are we talking about? What are some of the challenges that are facing people uniquely to uh, New York, New Jersey? Yeah, New York homelessness is unique because um, the city of New York um, has, uh, through a through a, a legal case uh, many years ago, uh, adopted this what's called a right to shelter. So basically, anyone who comes through New York uh, has a legal right to a, a bed uh, and and a few uh, rules around that bed. So like they're entitled to a locker, and the beds have to be so far apart and. Um, and, and there's a there's a level of a sort of dignity that is sort of as, ascribed to the right to shelter. Now, uh, in New York right now, we, we have a, a mayor who's sort of trying to contest some of those rights. Uh, so it's a, it's a little messy right now at the moment. But uh, historically speaking, what makes New York interesting as far as homelessness is concerned is that there are technically more homeless people in New York City than any other city in America. Um, however, 
the vast majority of, of the folks who are experiencing homelessness are not in the street. Uh, the vast majority are, are, are what would be considered sheltered homeless, uh, meaning they, they don't have any long-term uh, individualized personal housing or, or a place that they can stay in long-term um, that, is, that is theirs, but they are indoors, uh, generally speaking, overnight. Um, so for example, if you go to LA uh, or if you go to San Francisco or Seattle or any of these other you know, sort of large American cities, uh, you, you'll see a lot more tent encampments. Now, it's not that you won't see them in New York, but the ratio is flipped. So in, in LA, for example, there's about you know, 80,000 or so homeless people and 65,000 of them are in the street. They're in Skid Row and encampments and on the beach and everything. Uh, in New York, it's the, around the same number. There's probably, it's actually probably a little bigger. There's probably about uh, 90 to 100,000 people experiencing homelessness in New York. Um, but again, it's reversed. So like 80% of them not, you know, are, are not in the street, strictly speaking. Um, so you're not going to see it quite as, uh, viscerally, uh, as you would in, in some other cities. Um, but that doesn't mean the challenges are not real because what happens is the shelter system is sort of this, like I mentioned, this bureaucratic maze. Uh, a lot of people get stuck uh, in the shelters um, because there really is not enough affordable housing. There's not enough uh, options for people to, uh, to move through the shelter system. The idea of emergency shelter was a short-term, um, you know, very finite experience for an emergency situation. But unfortunately, the average uh, stay at a New York City shelter uh, is about 509 days. Um, and so we're, we're talking about, uh, it's, they're, they're not, what's meant to be a short-term emergency sort of like uh, safety net type situation is, is not that at all because it becomes sort of a dead end uh, for people who are in crisis and it's very difficult to escape once you get into that uh, into that system. So um, now, at the same time, New York City is also uh, dealing with some uh, challenges when it comes to homelessness around, uh, at least acutely, around uh, uh, the migrant population that is being uh, sort of bussed up from the southern border on a daily basis. Last I heard, there's about 900 people arriving every single day uh, from Venezuela, from Colombia. They're coming up. Uh, through Panama. And I mean, there's even, you know, Chinese folks and Haitians and uh, people who are trying to get to the U.S. through this, uh, th this particular pass. Um, but it's, it's causing a lot of challenges. So just for example, numbers wise, two years ago, uh, two years ago, the shelter count in New York City of total individuals was about 48,000. Um, uh, about a week ago, the late, the, the, the number was 81,000. So the mayor would have you believe that those the, the jump from 48,000 to 81,000 is entirely uh, migrant related. Uh, that these are mostly people coming in from from uh, from the southern border. However, um, most advocates, myself included, would argue that uh, the mayor may be trying to um, sort of buffer uh, some of the homelessness crisis that's post-pandemic related and eviction moratorium related and economic and inflation related. I'm sort of trying to place the blame sort of entirely on this sort of migrant crisis, even though the migrant crisis is real. Um, most of those, of those of us who are in this advocacy space uh, would argue that it's not, it's, it's, you can't just chalk it up to the migrant 
uh, crisis, that, that there is a bigger problem going on in the city um, that is COVID related and economic related, uh, that is um, that the, the, this migrant community is sort of becoming the scapegoat for uh, a larger a larger crisis, which um, I, th I think is is continuing to become exacerbated by by the current policies that are being in, uh, kind of enforced by uh, the administration. So New York's interesting in that in that regard. We also serve in New Jersey. Um, there are a lot of uh, Newark, New Jersey, uh, for example. We serve there. Um, which is very proximate to New York. So there's a lot of overflow, um, but we're also seeing a lot of uh, folks that are new to the country in, new, in Newark. Uh, and then Patterson, New Jersey, we, we serve there as well, which is another smaller town. A lot of folks who probably are not familiar to the U.S. are not familiar with Patterson, um, but it's a city that was once a sort of a rust belt, like, in, like town that had a lot of infrastructure, a lot of factories, um, and, and now is sort of struggling. And there's a big, uh, the opioid crisis has really hit Patterson hard. Um, and so we're we're part of the uh, this group of uh, organizations that's trying to respond to the to the opioid crisis in Patterson as well. So we've definitely got our hands uh, our hands full. Uh, last year, our organization served sixty one thousand individuals. Um, so it's 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 a pretty remarkable uh, crisis right now. Homelessness in in this particular area where we serve is 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 probably worse than I've ever seen in my in my twelve plus years of doing this work. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project, or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Yeah, despite the efforts of you and so many others doing great work, I think you know we're starting to see the result of the pandemic that it was hardest on our most vulnerable. Now let's talk about some of those policy changes you talked about. Uh, so this is a, a Canadian-wide podcast, an, an international podcast, but we look at one of the bigger, the biggest city in Canada, Toronto. Uh, having similar problems on our subway system, yet we have not gone with the kind of the law and order of clearing out. There's been, uh, we've hired a, an organization similar to like a city relief loft to go in, outreach workers to chat and work with people and try and help them find services. Not the same in New York. With this new mayor, let's talk about some of those policy changes and what effect they've had on you and your team, and, and most importantly, on our most vulnerable. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in trying to give uh, mayors and, and people the benefit of the doubt. I certainly don't envy their, the situation that they're in and, 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 the, and the challenges that they're facing. Um, however, uh, I, will, I will say that my, my, uh, the, the rope <laughs> of benefit of the doubt is, is, running, is running short. Uh, <laughs> the mayor kind of came in uh, guns blazing with a, a, what he called a subway safety initiative. Uh, which was basically let's blanket the subway with cops. Um, let's let's make it harder. Let's make it you know criminalize people putting their feet up on the chair next to them on the subway. You know people sleeping on the subway, uh, people not getting off at their stop, people just riding the trains, um, getting pushed out, and um, and it, again just making it just sort of using the police as sort of a bludgeon uh, to get to get homeless people out of sight and out of mind. Uh, and and part of that was in response to the COVID pandemic where. Uh, so many people fled the city. 
2020, a lot of people just sort of left. Um, now people are coming back. Uh, and the problem that they're seeing is that they're seeing an increased visibility of people experiencing homelessness. And, and the problem is, is the dynamic uh, the, in the visibility. I think there's a lot of folks who, who, when they see homeless people, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to respond. They, they struggle with their own internal guilt and their own, uh, you know, sort of misconceptions of, of why this person should be in the street or on the subway next to them or why this person doesn't, you know, doesn't smell good or is acting erratically. Um, and so the mayor, by, by putting the police as sort of the tip of the spear, uh, has really, in my view, just exacerbated this, this mentality that sort of paints people in financial crisis as, uh, as criminals, as, as problems that need to be uh, sort of pushed or, or, or arrested away. Um, and so that was the right out of the gate was one of the first thing the mayor did was let's blank, just throw like lots of police. Uh, it's interesting. I'm talking on a Canadian podcast. I was actually interviewed by the Toronto star. Um, a reporter came to New York uh, and I, I got a, I got a quote in the, in the Toronto star that said that I, where I described the mayor as sort of a one tooled contractor uh, where, you know, it's like, it's like if you're all you have is a hammer, everything you see is a nail. Uh, and I really believe that the, the, the mayor in this case is, has really taken that approach in terms of the NYPD and police. Now, it's not, and it's not surprising given his background. Uh, mayor Eric Adams was you know, a police officer for many years. And, um, and so it, it does seem to, to kind of just naturally think that the police are sort of the, the solution to everything. Um, so that was the first thing. The other thing he did was that he increased the sweeps. You know, obviously, um, you know, basically these encampments that would pop up. Uh, the mayor, you know, just in, increased sanitation workers and police workers to just kind of clear them out and get them out of sight. Now, the interesting thing, again, is this: it's like it creates the homelessness shell game. That's all it does. It's basically this idea where if, if, if a tent pops up, I literally this is what they do. They, they, they will make them clean up. They'll throw away their stuff if they don't clean up fast enough. Um, and then they'll have to take a picture of the of the sidewalk before and after. So they, they have the tent encampment, they have the sleeping bag, they have the cardboard box, whatever. They take a picture of it. Then they come, they bring sanitation, they clean it up, they take a picture. But they, they will tell you, the people doing this will tell you, like, you can just move behind the, the shot. As long as you're behind the shot and I can show a picture that it was cleaned up, I've done my job. And so there's this dynamic where they've created this like homelessness shell game where it's like, you just move across the street, move around the corner. Uh, the, the, the data is, is abysmal. The number of people that they've actually gotten indoors as a result of these sweeps or these cleanups uh, is just absurd, is, is so minimal because the people that are in these encampments, um, they're, it's not like they're not aware that they have the option or even the right to go into shelter. They're, they're, uh, they're choosing, they're making the rational choice to sleep outside because they want to avoid the congregate shelter environment where you have 10, 20, 30 people on a floor, you have curfews, you have metal detectors, you have five minute shower rules, you're surrounded by people you don't know. Um, and so there's these dynamics where uh, this, there's this sort of myth that like, oh, well, if we just offer them shelter in the right way, maybe they'll, you know, accept it. And in the mayor's case, if we like basically threaten to throw all their stuff away and arrest them, then they'll, surely they'll accept the shelter uh, as an option. And, and, and obviously anyone who knows or has been in this work for any amount of time knows that that's just absurd. Um, it's a ridiculous notion. So um, the mayor, is, that was the next sort of big push he put in place. And um, yeah, and, and again, 
the only thing I can give the mayor credit for, not the only thing, the only thing I'm aware of, because I, I also understand that like affordable housing is a is a crisis that's not going to be solved overnight. So I also get that, and I understand that there may be things the mayor is doing that's behind the scenes, that's sort of infrastructure stuff that maybe we don't we're not seeing the results of, um, and and throwing two thousand extra police into the subway is something that you can do very quickly and very visibly, um, and so. I don't know if the mayor is doing a, doing any like investing a bunch of money. I'm not in those conversations to be honest with you around like the infrastructure piece of, of long-term uh, you know, po policies that may address homelessness on a macro level. Um, but my hunch and what all the advocates, legal aid society, coalition for the homeless, other organizations that I work with are, are seeing is um, that, the, that this mayor is, is, is more interested in, in criminalizing uh, homelessness than he is in solving uh, homelessness, which uh, is a shame um, and is, is is also difficult. It makes makes all of our jobs harder. Now, I, I've heard some bits around treatment too, like forced treatment, right? Like it, because yes. you know, people, and that's been around for years, where people would say, "Hey, let's take the choice away. Let's obviously they can't make it themselves. Let's force them into treatment." I think you and I both know forced treatment doesn't work so well. Um, is that that's happening as well? Oh, that's, that's even, I, you know, it's, it's been so much. I totally even missed that piece. Yes. The forced hospitalizations, uh, it's just unbelievable. So that, that, and from an outreach standpoint, that, that policy now, so basically for those who don't know the mayor, there, there's a law in, 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 on the books already in New York, where it's called Kendra's law, where it's based on a, you know, someone who is dealing with mental illness that basically if someone is incapable, uh, of taking care of themselves, uh, or they're a danger to the, the language is if they're a danger to themselves or others, they can be forcibly hospitalized, um, you know, sort of against their will. Um, the mayor has taken the approach that people who are experiencing homelessness are intrinsically a danger to themselves. Like if they can't provide for themselves and like get, keep themselves clean and, 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 you know, fed and housed, then they are a, a danger to themselves. It's, it's a very paternalistic, approach. And it's a very paternalistic view of, of people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, and so he basically has tried to empower uh, the police and, and others to uh, forcibly remove people who, who, may, who may appear to not be uh, adequately caring for themselves. Um, and it's, it's been a real issue because what he has not done is he has not actually increased the bed capacity uh, inside the hospitals where these people would be taken, which means that he has effectively built an express lane to a cul-de-sac, uh, which, which is like you're, you're, you're increasing these, the number of people who are being brought to emergency rooms against their wills, but then they're being discharged within two to three days because they don't have beds for them and they're not, they don't want to stay there. And, and technically, if they're not Again, if the hospital doesn't have the capacity to care for them, they're not going to be able, they're just going to discharge them. So it's made, and, and then for my part, it's made my job and my team's job harder because now I'm going to be less likely to call 911 to get someone help or because my concern is if I'm building trust with someone, I'm trying to help them move forward, escape homelessness, and they're in a crisis and I, and I, and they express that they would like, they might be a danger to themselves or others. If I, call the police, if I call 911, I'm sorry, if I call for help, for medical help, they're going to send police. And if, if that ends up escalating the, the, the crisis, 
now what I've done is this person who was coming to me asking for help is now going to see me as a uh, as the cause of their trauma as they are dragged against their will potentially to the hospital. Um, and so it's really even created this dynamic where I am less likely to call for help because I don't know if that help is going to come in the form of handcuffs uh, and police officers rather than medical professionals. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a mess. It's a, it's a mess. And it's, um, it, it, it's very disheartening. And I've heard that, and I'm getting, hopefully I'm not getting my facts mixed up, but some of it is I, I heard a number that like over 8,000 people have been incarcerated. Like, so that is seen almost incarceration is almost seen as a way to end homelessness, which is insane. Uh, but is that, can you, you, you talk a little bit about that? Well, that's just the American way. I mean, that's, that's for, for my, I don't, I don't know enough about Canada, to, but like mass incarceration, that's like, that's like apple pie, man. That's like the American way. So, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of just hiding people who are in poverty and, and, and struggling behind bars, uh, that, that Giuliani started, did that back in the day, back when he was the mayor of New York. I mean, he would send police with outreach workers and be like, look, it's either move or get arrested. Um, so this is not even a new approach. Uh, it's, it's the same old, same old. It's, it's criminalizing poverty, again, pushing it out of sight. If it's out of sight, it's out of mind. Uh, and then it makes, it makes people who are in authority look like they're doing something. Um, when in reality, all it's doing is exacerbating the problem because now you're talking about generational trauma uh, and you're talking about, um, you know, criminal records. And, uh, you know, this is, and this is happening across the U.S. There are cities across the country that are increasing the laws against, say, they're, they're going like vagrancy laws or quality of life laws. Um, again, all euphemisms for get that homeless person out of sight so I don't have to think about them laws, um, which, again, it, it doesn't solve anything. It just, and also, it's also from a pricing standpoint, incarcerating someone is stupid expensive. So it doesn't even save money. So it, it's so backwards to me. I don't, I don't well, quite I understand. Think one of, uh, I was in New York City on a, on a study tour last week. And uh, one, of, one of the guys said that the correction budget for New Jersey is bigger than all of Canada. It's Crushed, right? Because they, they strongly believe in that. And you're absolutely right. It's uh, very expensive. One of the things we, we visited a place uh, in um, New Jersey, I believe, and they talked about uh, last fixed address. So they said they come into the shelter and they find out that they came there from Florida. They haven't lived there for over six months. They'll send them back to Florida. And, that, and, and one of the people in the church said, well, what about people with no fixed address? And she said, well, yeah, they have wherever your last stay was, was your last address. And you will go back there because we don't want to like, and, and to, to me, so like in where I am, I'm situated North of Toronto, but there's, if you're experiencing homelessness, who cares about the borders? You're going to go where the services are, or where you feel comfortable. Are you, um, and I can't imagine, and there might be a reason, absolutely, as you would know, as they left where it's unsafe or, or, you know, something's happened, some kind of trauma. So they're trying to get away, but is that, that's true too. It's this whole pushing them back to where, I'm convinced that most people, if, if they, if they could, so I, I made this joke on Twitter a while ago, uh, which is not, it's not really a funny joke. It's more of, <laughs> but it's like the only, because in the United States, we have a two party system, you know, Republicans, Democrats are always at each other's throats and 
they all disagree on on, on everything apparently. Um, but I, I I tweeted out like the only thing Republicans and Democrats agree on is that they don't want any homeless people near their train stations. Um, it's 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 basically the only thing everyone can get on board with. Uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't matter if we have a Democratic mayor or Republican mayor. It doesn't matter. Like if if you have if you have homeless people near a train station, you need to get them get them gone. Um, and and the police and again the criminalizing. Uh, the, you know, these services, making, making the, just experiencing homelessness a crime. Um, it, again, it, it doesn't serve any purpose other than the appearance of productivity, the appearance of proactivity. Um, and, and it doesn't, it's just, it's just a, it's a loop. It's a cycle. And I said to you offline, we actually uh, visited the police academy where I think the police over the years, uh, despite people's beliefs, the police have worked fairly hard at building relationships. You said building trust with people, uh, trying to not get them to fear the police, but understand they're looking out for everyone's best interests. And they're saying it's very difficult with some of these new things in place that that breaks the trust and sends them back to square one. One hundred percent. And honestly, I mean, I I don't even I don't even feel I mean, I feel bad uh for for the i mean i've met many police officers who genuinely care and genuinely want to do like they didn't go into this line of work generally speaking again i understand there's there's exceptions but like there's a lot of people who are um you know in this in in the work of the of policing who didn't sign up to just like arrest and grab you know people who are dealing with with homelessness or, or mental health crises like they, they didn't go into the work to 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 do that to kind of be this uh the bludgeon uh of people and, and moving them out so i it's i i compl- it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that there is frustration on behalf of on, on the part of the police uh when they are being asked to be psychiatrists they're being asked to be social workers they're being asked to be you know any manner of, of, of assistance while also being tasked with getting the people out of sight and, and, and arresting people who are uh, resisting and, and et cetera. So it's, it's a very difficult situation for them. And so, yeah, I feel, but it certainly doesn't, doesn't help the situation at all. I, I another question too, just about process where there are people talking about the chronicity of something about having to prove you've been in a shelter 12 months before you actually could go to housing and get a voucher which seemed different kind of thinking, different process than we're used to here. Can you talk a little bit? How does that work? They go into a shelter and have to remain there for a year before they're housed or? Yeah. So again, just keep in mind that New York City has a, what's called a right to shelter. It's not a right to housing. Uh, so our whole system is set up to hold people in temporary spaces, um, which means that they, the idea, like I said, the average stay of someone in the shelter system is 509 days. So uh, if you're in a shelter, you are obligated to get to stay in that same placement for a year. So the, I've talked to people who have told me that uh, going to jail felt safer to them because there was somebody else in the jail who was threatening them. They could they could request a transfer because of for safety reasons. In New York, in the shelter system, it's not that easy. It's actually harder. Like. They'll, they'll say, well, we don't, you know, you're, you're here by choice. You can leave any time, um, but you are, you're required to stay at one shelter for a year uh, if, if you were at once you have been placed. So the way the system works, it's kind of like a giant funnel. They have intake centers 
throughout the city for different demographics of people. And then once you go through that intake center, they, they establish whether or not you qualify uh, for, for, for shelter, meaning you have no viable alternative. Once they have established you have no viable alternative, they'll place you into a shelter. Um, and then once you're placed there, you have to stay for a year while you're trying to get your housing together. You're trying to find jobs. You're trying to all these other things that you're trying to do. Meanwhile, there's curfews. There's rules about what you can bring in. There's safety dynamics that people com that complain about. Um, and so I, I've had this situation many times where I'm talking to someone who has been placed in a shelter that they feel is unfit for human life uh, and they choose to leave. But if they were to go back into the shelter system, it's not like they could get placed in a different shelter. Even though there's hundreds of shelters available, uh, they would be required to go back to the same one, even though that one is the reason they left to begin with. Uh, so, it, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bureaucratic uh, nightmare. Um, and, and the rules and the, and, the, and the structure around it has sort of become this, this massive thing that now sometimes is what keeps people out or an ironic uh, sort of sort of ironic twist or what keeps people in. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really, it's really problematic. Um, yeah. It's, it's just difficult to, to navigate. So, so I so appreciate your time and, and this is fascinating. And, and what, what in your mind has to happen in the next while for us to make some big inroads into really getting people off the street for good. Yeah, that's uh, to be honest with you, I'm 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 not the most optimistic person in the world. Um, in the sense of I don't I, what I what I believe has to happen is there has to be a uh, a concerted effort uh, on the part of of leadership uh, within our cities um, and, and nationally to stop treating people who are experiencing homelessness like they are the problem. Um, they they are the the victims. Um, and so we need to shift how we think about the, the services we provide for them. Because the other thing that we, that we do, at least in, in the United States, is um, we treat people like they are the reason they're in the street. And, and we, we, we develop processes and services um, that, that are based around this idea that the people that they're serving are not actually um, smart enough or capable enough to make their own decisions and process their own situations effectively. Um, it's again, it's very paternalistic in terms of how we think about people who are in the street. Um, so there has to be a shift in mindset. We have to start thinking about homeless folks as customers, uh, as people who uh, we need to build frameworks and services that treat the customer uh, like a like a paying customer, so that we start hearing from them about what services, what kind of environments that they would actually accept. Um, and we and we saw this happen during the pandemic when we started putting homeless folks in hotel rooms. If many many of the people that we saw on the street were very happy to go into hotel rooms, um, it was when we started moving them back into congregate spaces that that the street population started jumping up again, which is not surprising to anyone who works in this space. So we have to shift the way we think about homelessness um, from sort of a drain on society to maybe what's wrong with society. Like what, what are we doing that's creating the dynamic that, that is exacerbating homelessness rather than looking at the homeless people and saying, what are you doing that is leading you to being in the street? I, I really believe that we have to take a more customer centric approach, um, which would involve, I think, re 
building, you know, re reallocating hotel rooms into SROs, uh, investing in affordable housing, um, investing in, uh, in, in sort of breaking down some of the bureau bureaucratic processes and zoning codes um, that this is actually where I would, again, I'm, I'm probably more of a cent. I mean, depending on who you, depending on who you ask, but like some of the, the, the zoning laws that, that restrict what type of housing can even be built is actually leading to people staying in the streets. This is what's happening in LA and in New York and a lot of places. There's a lot of these bureaucratic rules around what you can and can't do with specific spaces that limits what we can actually build. Um, we have to break those down. We have to make it easier for people to get housed. Um, and then, like I said, we have we have to we have to be more compassionate, um, and we and we have to start to to shift the way we think about people. So that's one of the reasons I wrote a book um, called Neighbors with No Doors, um, which the goal of the book was to try to help the general public who are housed, kind of empathetically think about the people who are in the streets um, through the lens of their experience rather than through the lens of stereotype and stigma. Because I really believe that we have a stigma problem and a narrative problem that, that blames homeless people for their situation rather than understanding the complexities of the, of the, of the trauma that they're going through. Yeah, I mean, part, part of uh, just how I always frame it is everyone out there is a brother, a sister, a mom, a dad, an uncle, there's someone's family, right? And they didn't start there. So, so, you know, think of it that way. What would you want for your family? And if that's exactly. that, well, then exactly. you're a very cruel person, but generally not, right, going forward. Well, let's talk yeah. about, so if people want to learn more about City Relief and, and, and see what you, the great work you're doing, where can they go? Oh, it's super easy. Cityrelief.org is our website. Um, if you go on Instagram, it's at City Relief. Um, and like I said, I mean, we're, you know, we're all over social media um, because, again, as an organization, we believe not only is our job to help homeless folks get off the street, uh, but it's also to help the general public understand and empathize more with uh, the struggle that their neighbors, their family members, as you said, and uh, their brothers and sisters are going through. So go to cityrelief.org. Um, you can find me. Uh, I'm at, at Josiah underscore Haken on Instagram uh, or just at Josiah Haken on Twitter. Um, yeah, just trying to always keep this lens uh, and keep the public informed around these issues uh, and just continue to humanize our homeless neighbors as effectively as possible. Yeah, I mean, I encourage people to check out just as uh, that's where I found them on uh, social media and telling the stories of people on the street and the great work that City Relief's doing, who they're reaching out to. Um, I said, you know, I saw that. And this is someone who had to come on on the way home. Uh, thank you so much for all you and your team do. You're, you're, you know, some days I'm sure it's a, well, most days I'm sure it's a struggle, but you're impacting and changing, saving lives. Uh, and I so appreciate you dropping knowledge and sharing with us today, taking time out of your business schedule. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for all you're doing as well. All right. Now, last question before you go. I think you've answered it with your hat. Yankees or Mets? Yankees, baby. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. It's a good choice, Matt. Good choice. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. 
and we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.